You know, that song, uh, Create in Me a Clean Heart, uh, if, if, when you look back at King David's life in First Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel anointed king, uh, David to be the next king of Israel. And you, you, I don't need to go into exhaustive details to all, what, all the events that transpired, but as you probably well know, we see that uh, you know, uh, Jesse had multiple sons. They all seemed to be the obvious choice, and yet God chose the unobvious choice, and that was David, the shepherd boy, the youngest one, the runt of the family, and he said, this will be the next king of Israel because this is a man after, after my own heart. And of course, he was anointed as king, and it says in 1 Samuel 16 that when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and never departed from him from that day forward. Well, sometime later, King David uh, is in a season of compromise. And of course, when you're already in a, a state of mind of compromise, as we've talked about before, it leads to actions of compromise. And David sinned with Bathsheba, and again, not going into all the details, had her husband killed to try to cover up his sin. The prophet Nathan comes, exposes his sin, and Psalm 51 is that that psalm of repentance and confession of the song we just sang. Now there's a line in there that says, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I'm not sure if you've thought about that, that little lyric or not, but the question I think that can easily come to mind is, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose the Holy Spirit? Well, we also need to understand that David was not a Christian. Not in the New Testament sense. You see, the term Christian, or even follower of Christ, that was when Jesus came and fulfilled God's redemptive plan. That was the climax of human history, the climax of God's redemptive plan. Prior to that, everything was a foreshadow of things to come. And so we see that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are indwelled, we are filled with the Spirit of Christ who promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and died for the sins of the world once and for all, there was only a handful of incidences where people were actually filled with the Spirit of Christ. People like Joshua, people like King David, the prophets. But not everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when David is saying that, when he's crying out to the Lord in, in a prayer of repentance and confession in Psalm 51, he's not wondering, will I lose the Holy Spirit and therefore lose my salvation? That's not what he's concerned about. What David is actually crying out to the Lord to be patient and merciful on is that, Lord, if you take your Spirit's anointing off of me, my leadership will be in vain. And all you have to do is look at David's predecessor to see what happened. You see, the hand of the Lord was lifted away from Saul because he was a, a, a king of, that was rebellious. And so God actually removed his presence from Saul's life and he, he landed his presence on King David's life. And what David is crying out to the Lord is like, Lord, do not do that to me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It doesn't mean that David would stop being a God-fearer. It doesn't mean that he would, all of a sudden, his salvation was in question 
He just wanted his leadership to be spirit-empowered and spirit-anointed. And we see in Scripture that when someone is in a season or a pattern of sin or rebellion, that spirit's anointing can be removed, and it can even happen today. Again, we're not talking about a salvation issue here. We're talking about God's anointing on his church, on his redemptive initiatives. But one of the beautiful things that we get to celebrate as New Testament Christians Again, we're on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One, thing, one, one of the promises that we hold very dear and find great rest and confidence in is, is this, that what Jesus accomplished at the cross we, is that we are guaranteed eternal life. A promise that cannot be taken away because the Spirit does not leave us as his followers. And this is why Paul will emphatically announce in Romans chapter 8, by the way, Doug, I am going to release him. Just a second. Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a, a, a worthy spot to go. Thank you, Jesus. You said, this is what Jesus accomplished at the cross. This is what Jesus finished. When he says, it is finished, he says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And when the Spirit takes residence in our heart, he doesn't go back and forth. When, when God adopts us, he, we don't go back and forth from, in a state of adoption, unadoption, adoption, unadoption, depending upon our performance. If it was left to our performance, we would all be on our knees confessing because our salvation would always be in question. But the cross of Jesus, when he said it is finished, there's no longer a need to wonder but to rest in the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. In Christ, our hearts are made clean. In Christ, our lives, our soul is declared righteous, pure, sanctified, and holy. Isn't that crazy? Because I know my heart in part. Christ knows my heart even better. And yet he still says, I love you. I'm committed to you. And I'm going to continue to make you clean even in spite of what you're aware of going on in your own life. Church family, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, whatever the case may be. Um, But I'm going to encourage you to turn to your Bibles because when you turn on your Bibles, you also, you know, notifications and everything else. The temptation is very much there. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Last week we concluded our series through the Ten Commandments, and uh, this this morning we're going to begin our series. Uh, this morning is going to really be an introduction to the beginning of our series, called the Fruit of the Spirit. And this passage that we're going to read here in just a second um, is really kind of the jump-off passage for uh, the next number of weeks. Actually, it'll take us through the end of summer when we go through the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And there'll be many passages that refer to through as the weeks come along. But Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, we'll read all the way through verse 26. Let's read together. 
Actually, you listen, I'll read. How about that? But I say, this is Paul speaking, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. I don't think I have to explain to you or convince you that by living here in Port Angeles, Washington, or even necessarily the northwest part of the continental U.S., we live in the land of evergreens, right? We live with a lot of uh, what they call uh, the conifer uh, states, basically. You know, in fact, when I first moved here, um, even though I was from Alaska and there was a lot of evergreens there, there was kind of a limited variety, but moving to the northwest, I'm like, wow, there's all kinds of spruces and all kinds of cedars and all kinds of dug firs and there's so many different kinds of these things. There's, there's cypress and there's junipers and there's so many varieties and we obviously classify them like, oh, that's a spruce and that's a spruce or that's a dug fir or that's a, that's a, that's a, a cedar or whatever it is but there's a whole ton of varieties within it and I've always wondered and Abby can attest to this because when we first came here the first few years driving around like Lake Crescent for example, I'm like, I'm just doing the looky-loo thing and all these amazing large trees. And she's like, please just concentrate on the road. And I'm like, like, these trees are amazing. And I always wondered, how do you tell the difference? Like, again, I'm not an arborist or anything. So, again, I'm, I'm kind of wet behind the ears when it comes to tree identification and stuff. But I learned a few things and asked a few questions. And, of course, it's helpful to talk to loggers. And I remember even at our old house, uh, we had this really perfectly coned, I mean, it would, have been the, it would have been the ideal Christmas tree for the downtown, you know, uh, kind of by the fountain there and stuff. And I was like, man, that's like a perfect tree. And it was just a spruce in my mind, but I knew it was a little bit different. I didn't know why it was different. And when I had an arborist come and look at it, and we were trying to figure out what to do because the roots were tearing up our driveway, um, he said, oh yeah, that's a silver spruce. And I said, how do you know it's a silver spruce? And I didn't even notice it, but he's like, if you look underneath the, the needles, they're kind of a metallic silver. And I had noticed that before, and I'm like, oh. He's like, that's kind of a distinguishing mark of, of a, what a silver spruce is. That's how you can tell that this is a silver spruce versus another kind of spruce. Of course, being in the Northwest, we also have what's called deciduous trees. I know you're probably thinking my biology class is really 
helping me here, but uh, we have what's called deciduous trees. Those are the trees that drop their leaves, right, that cause all the raking later along in the fall. Uh, We have a lot of fruit trees, for example, and they're the same thing. They all have their unique characteristics or qualities. In fact, when we were we took the pencils over to our, our property, and uh, I think it was Mandy that was saying, like, what kind of trees are those? And they were in the neighbor's yard. And I said, great question. I guess we'll find out this fall. Meaning, there, I knew that that neighbor had said they were both, there's pear trees, plum trees, and apple trees in that little conglomerate. And honestly, when you look at them, they all look kind of the same, at least at a distance. And I'm sure if you got really close, and if you're an arborist, you can probably tell unique differences. But the fact is, you really could really ultimately tell by like, in the fall, we're going to know exactly what kind of trees they are because we know the tree by what? By its fruit. Let me ask you a question. How do you recognize a Christian? What are the identifiable characteristics that distinguish a Christian from any other person? You know, the Bible does say, right? For example, Matthew 12, Jesus says, either make a tree good and its fruit good or make a tree bad and its fruit bad, but, it, but for the tree is known by its fruit. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that, that the way you distinguish false prophets from genuine followers of Jesus is by the fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. But, but what does Jesus mean when he refers to people as fruit, or you will recognize people by their fruit. What, what, what is fruit here? Well, I think it's helpful to understand that fruit is the outward expression of one's inward condition. Fruit is the outward expression of one's inward condition. In other words, what comes out of a person tells you in reality, what's inside that person. So for example, you know, to give you a a, a common everyday example, especially here in the Northwest, you can tell when someone has a cold. Why? Because there are some outward symptoms, some visible symptoms that go, oh, you don't look so good. You're not feeling so well. Maybe they got runny nose. Maybe they got like... Their eyes are just kind of shot, got the bags in the eyes because they're not sleeping well. Maybe their, their voice is as low as, low as uh, Mike Jones or something. It's just, it's just like, it's like, oh, you are not feeling so hot. I can tell that you are fighting an infection, that you probably have a cold right now. When we, when we talk about fruit in Scripture, we see that Jesus says that you will recognize people by their fruit, by the outward expression. And because the outward expression ultimately tells you what's going on on the inside, in a positive sense, the fruit really refers to one's godliness or, or character or, or holiness. That's what fruit really rep- recognizes or represents. In a negative sense, we see that fruit refers to godlessness, immorality, and idolatry. But the point I'm getting at is this, that the real person is exposed by what they talk about, by how they live, their choices in life, their priorities, their daily rhythm. This tells you the true state of a person's heart. It reveals, actually, their true affections in life. 
Now, yes, people can obviously fake it for a while, and everybody has the ability to put their, what we call their best foot forward for a season, but eventually, eventually, the real person is, is exposed. Over time, a person's true character, a person's true allegiance is revealed. So, what fruit is consistent of a Christian? What character qualities are evident in a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, according to our passage this morning in Galatians chapter 5, right? Paul, the apostle, he gives us contrasting fruits. Those who belong to the world and of the flesh and those who belong to God and are of the Spirit. Specifically in regards to the Spirit, we see that the fruit consistent of a genuine Christian is that of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I think it's important to kind of identify or to clarify a couple of points here because we can sometimes run down a path that is not intended. For example, uh, fruit here is actually singular. Fruit is a singular term, and you might be wondering, well, why does that really matter? Is that really a big deal? Well, it's kind of a big deal in this, in this sense that Paul is not talking about lots of different kinds of fruit. We're not talking about a cornucopia of fruit, right? We're not talking about a medley of fruit. We're talking about one fruit with many parts. For example, you have an apple with a, the skin on it. You have the flesh. You have the inside core with the seeds. You've got a stem coming out. We're talking about many parts of one fruit. We might better call them as virtues. In other words, the fruit of godliness and godly character is made up of various parts, of various virtues. And much like every part of the fruit matters for it to fully grow and to produce as it's designed, so every godly virtue matters in order for spiritual growth to take place. And again, the reason why I believe this is so important is that sometimes we can maybe regard or view these virtues or these, these different, uh, this different parts of the fruit kind of like a, a bringing a fruit tray or a fruit platter to a potluck. It doesn't mean that you have every kind of fruit on there, but you have a decent medley, and that's good enough, right? It's a good variety. But you see, when it comes to godliness... Every godly virtue matters. Not just some, not just mostly. God cares about every godly virtue. Because you see, God wants to grow every form of godliness within us. He wants to grow every godly virtue within us because all these virtues are what really bring us into right relationship with himself. You see, when we embody these virtues, what we, are really able, what we are really doing is that we are reflecting His glory that much clearer. And so every part of these virtues matter. It's one fruit with many parts. But the second thing I think it's important to understand is that Galatians 5 is not the end-all passage for all the godly virtues. It just happens to be the most popular passage. 
You see, there are many other passages of Scripture that also speak to other virtues that are not even listed in this Galatians 5 passage. So you, this is not an exhaustive or complete list of godly virtues. For example, you can look at uh, uh, 1 Peter 3, 8, 9. Finally, all of you, Peter says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So there's some virtues in there. We see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 2 Corinthians 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way with purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. The point is that there, there are many other passages that if you were to kind of really make an exhaustive list, you have to kind of take a survey of what Scripture says, and then we will have a much fuller expression of godliness, of right character, of a pure heart. Galatians 5, as I said, just happens to be the most popular passage and why we call it the fruit of the Spirit. But I think a question that is important for us to grapple with before we in, in kind of embark on this series is, why does it matter? Why does it even matter? Why does bearing visible fruit matter? Why is bearing visible fruit important? Well, it matters first and foremost because it matters to God. Bearing fruit or visible fruit is something that is important to the heart of God. You see, godly character or what we might describe as holiness matters to God because God is a holy God, right? And you read in in Leviticus 20, for example, God says, you shall be holy to me. Why? Because I am holy. And so God desires that every aspect of our life, every aspect of our being, kind of come to the surrender under the authority and the allegiance of his holiness so that we too might become holy as he is holy. Because here's the important thing, and brothers and sisters, pay attention to this. When every matter of our life is, is lived in holiness, it is then that we are whole. When every aspect of our life is lived with the intention in the pursuit of holiness, that is the place or the time in which we are whole. Perhaps we could summarize it in a very succinct way and say it this way. Wholeness is the result result of holiness. Wholeness, completeness, is the result of of holiness. And I believe I can probably guess that every single one of us in here, though you might use different terminology, we desire to be whole. Because to be whole means to be complete, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, to be at peace. It's what we all long for as human beings. And yet the Bible makes it clear that the path to wholeness is through the means of holiness. This is why we oftentimes have said, and I'll just kind of remind you once again, God's number one goal for us is to transform us, right? 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is a fancy term that means to, that God's intention for you is to remake you. Not to give you a different personality, but to sanctify your personality, to purify your personality, to make your personality reflect the glory of God most expressively, most purely. So God's number one desire for us is to remake us so we might reflect his glory, knowing that all the while, that is when we are whole. I think the question that naturally follows too then is, well, how do we do this? If fruit is so important to God and and, and it really reveals what's there, how do we produce fruit that is consistent with a true Christian? How do we yield the fruit of the Spirit if this is something that God expects of us? And here's the short answer. You don't. You can't. God does. You see, here's the standard that God sets forth in Scripture, and this happens time and time again, and yet the standard is also unachievable. It is unreachable on your own. You see, transformation, holiness, righteousness, purity, a clean heart, that is all a work of God in you. That is all a work of the Holy Spirit in you. You don't make yourself right. You don't make yourself acceptable. God makes you acceptable to God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and, make you, and make you, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Or listen to Philippians 1.6, right? Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, transformation, as I said, is a work of God by his grace. Yes, the law is important because the law convicts, but grace is what transforms. And as Brian Chappell says, both are necessary. The law must convict. It must expose your ugliness in a sense. It must expose the true condition of your heart. And then grace comes on and says, but watch what I do. Watch how I remake you for my glory. Of course, I think the question that follows then is, does that mean we sit passively by doing nothing? I mean, if God is the one who's doing this, am I kind of off the hook? Do I not need to necessarily do anything? And the short answer again is no. No, sanctification isn't passive, but proactive. The pursuit of holiness may not be easy, but it is necessary. And the fight of faith may be intense, but it is glorious. In other words, there is a part that we play. So what part is that? Our part in transformation or sanctification is to abide. We are called to abide in Christ as he does the glorious, supernatural, miraculous, sanctifying work in our hearts. Can I just, I want want to ask you actually to turn to John chapter 15. In John 15, um, by the way, if you're looking for a passage of scripture that maybe 
very, that may be uh, very apropos to memorize, this would be a good point to memorize. And the reason I say that is like this is kind of one of those foundational truths that we need to come to or reference regularly or daily in our life. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, again, Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He's already told them many times that he's going away, and they don't quite understand it, and he's saying there's a spirit, of, the spirit's going to come upon you, and he's going to have all kinds of functions, but this is what he charges his disciples. He says this in John 15, verse 1 and following, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I know that's a mouthful, but let me just summarize what Jesus encouraged and exhorted his disciples to do in John 15. We can summarize it, I believe, in this way, that joy is the result of pleasing God as his disciples. Again, joy is one of those, again, it's, it's one, of the fruit, the, one of the fruit that we're going to look at, right? It's our part of the fruit that we're looking at. Love, joy, peace, patience. Joy is something that we all long for. Every one of us desires happiness, joy, fulfillment. We want to, to live a good life, to have a good quality of life, to really enjoy life. Jesus says joy is the result of pleasing God as his disciples. That is the means by which we experience the joy we long for. But then he goes on to say, pleasing God and proving that we are his disciples is the result of bearing fruit. And bearing fruit is the result of abiding in Jesus Christ. And abiding in Jesus Christ is the result of abiding in his love. And abiding in, his, in Christ's love is the result of keeping his commandments and finally, keeping his commandments is the result of knowing his commandments. So if you were to kind of bookend how Jesus begins and how he concludes that exhortation and that invitation, Jesus says, if you want, 
your joy to be made full. Abide in me, and the way you abide in me is by keeping my commandments, and the way you keep my commandments is by knowing my commandments. Translation, the word of God, God's inspired scriptures is non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus Christ. It is imperative that we expose ourselves to, expose ourselves to and sit under the teaching and the ministry of the word not just in sermon form on a Sunday necessarily, but in your own private life with one another in your, in your life groups. You see, we need continual exposure uh, to God's word because it is in that exposure that God transforms. You do realize that God does his transforming work as we discussed just a few minutes earlier by exposing you to the word of God. The spirit of God takes the word of God and changes you. Sometimes we want to press the easy button going, can you just change me and I don't have to do a whole lot? And God says, no, the way I change you is by using my inspired and divine word to bring about transformation in one's heart. I read a blog just this past week, one blog that I kind of follow sometimes, it's called The Chorus and the Chaos. And uh, not only do I like the title, but uh, in this particular um, uh, and one particular article in this blog, it says it was titled The Three Worst Bibles You Already Know. Or own, excuse me. The Three Worst Bibles You Already Own. And I was like, that's interesting. Is it talking about translations? What's it talking about? And so I went in and I read the article and it says, what are they? And it says the three worst Bibles you already own. One, the Bible you don't read. Two, the Bible you don't know. And three, the Bible you don't obey. I'm willing to bet that most of us in here probably can say I got a, a handful of Bibles on our shelf somewhere. Maybe they're acting as paperweights, I don't know. But the three worst Bibles, according to this article, are the, is the Bible you don't read, don't know, and don't obey. But as we see in John 15, abiding in Christ begins and continues by consistent time with Jesus through the scriptures. There is no option B. There's no shortcut to, to bearing fruit. Bearing fruit and the joy that results, the joy that follows is the result of abiding with Jesus through his internal and inspired word. Brothers and sisters, can I just say, take the daily time to spend God, to, in, to spend with God, to encounter God through His Word. We are often malnourished and, 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 and struggling, not because the church isn't doing enough to serve you, but because you aren't doing what you need to do to serve your own soul. You're not willing to do anything as Satan, our enemy. He loves to distract. He loves to, de- deceive, to de- deceive you. And he's going to make you compromise. You know what? I'll get to it tomorrow. I know I need to, but it's just not convenient. Or I'm just so tired. Satan knows that the word of God transforms you is what you actually need. He knows that. That's why it's so difficult to start a good habit. And he'll do whatever, he doesn't have to say, he doesn't have to convince you that God doesn't exist. That's not his greatest goal for you. He just wants to make sure you never encounter him. 
that you never spend time with him, that you are a dry, lukewarm Christian. So the word of God is imperative. Third and finally, I just want to say this very quickly. Confess often. You see, our part in bearing fruit is obviously is a full dependence on God, but we are called to abide. And part of that abiding relationship is that we just get in the habit of confession. I've already talked about it many times. Now, Pastor Tom and Pastor Mike have talked about it many times. We don't need to go into exhaustive detail, but confession is a way of life for the Christian, not because we're trying to regain our salvation, not because we're trying to, to, to merit God's favor and love for us once again. That never leaves us, remember. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're just blind to his love when we are living in sin. We are blind to what's right in front of us when we are unwilling to confess. And so confession is actually a grand invitation. This isn't penance we're talking about. This is an invitation. God's, God is eager to forgive you. Again, another lie from the enemy is, much like Adam and Eve, and it's never been, the, it's never been different since the Garden of Eden, I sinned, I rebelled, and now I need to go hide in shame. And yet God is actually continually pursuing us. He's like, no, I love you. I want to be with you. I think a, a statement that really stuck out, my wife and I are reading part of our morning devotional. We're reading a book right now called Gentle and Lowly. By the way, by Dane Ortland. if you want a, a very impactful understanding of who Jesus is, gentle and lowly. He does a I won't go into any detail, but there's one particular chapter. They're short chapters, but very rich, very weighty. But Ortland uh, includes a quote by Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin that says, Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Let me say that again. Jesus sides with you against your sin. He does not side against you because of your sin. That is a paradigm shift of paradigm shifts. It is so important. And this is, man, Satan loves to twist the truth, doesn't he not? He loves to twist the truth and make us feel like, oh no, God, Jesus probably wants nothing to do with me. I'm ashamed. He wants, he wants to take me out. And actually, Jesus is saying, I can't wait to restore this relationship. By the way, I've never left. But I woo you back. I beckon you back. He's not against you ever. He's never against his children. He's always for you. But he does hate your sin, much like a father hates the cancer that may be killing their child. Much like any parent who cares about an ailment or sickness that is eating at their own children. They don't hate the children. They hate what's festering inside them. And on a spiritual level, our Heavenly Father says, oh, I've, I love you. I sent my son to die for you in your sin when we were enemies. I'm not against you. I'm against the sin in you. And I love you so much, I'm going to eradicate it from you. He will surely do it. 
So my prayer for this series as we go through the fruit of the Spirit is this, that it would be like a firm and kind of loving, gentle nudge towards further godliness. I pray as we go through each virtue that you would be able to ask yourself questions like, is this particular virtue true of me? Maybe even throughout the invitation or the the challenge to talk to your spouse or talk to someone close to you and ask them, do you see this virtue true of me? You see, as we go through these virtues, my prayer is that that we would take time for self-reflection, for self-examination, much like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, or 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that this series would only encourage you, challenge you, yes, but actually even affirm what the Spirit of God is already doing in your life. And by God's grace, will know this is what a Christian is. This is how you identify a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. These are the fruit, this is the fruit that is evident within one who loves Jesus and who has been overwhelmed and compelled by the love of Jesus. So I'm excited to do this with you. And it's been something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And for such a time as this, we're going to spend the rest of the summer going all the way through this fruit, and I'm looking forward to growing with you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. You're a good, good Father. Lord, I just pray that even this morning we would celebrate, that we would experience, that we would be filled with your goodness. Because when it's all said and done, Life happens in so many different ways, mostly unpredictable. It's important that we keep coming back to or returning to a very necessary point of reference, and that is this, that you love us, that you care deeply for us, that you will provide for us, that you will take care of our needs, that you will meet us where we're at, that you know the deep longings that we have in our hearts and that you are working actively at this moment to meet those needs. Father, may we be encouraged and refreshed. May we love each other well. May the world know that we are Christians by the love that we have for one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.